If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Just how close were the Soviets to landing on the moon? And what role did spying play in the development of space travel? Well, today we've got the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, and our subject is the space race. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, put your questions on the subject to Tom Ellis, a historian specialising in US foreign policy, US-Russian relations and the history of the Cold War at LSE. Right, Tom, well, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Now, as is the case of all our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts, uh, the questions I'm about to ask you are a mixture of listener questions and popular internet search queries. Now, I think, Tom, I'll start with one of the latter. And this question is quite a basic one, but one I thought would might be a good scene setter before we dive into our listeners' queries. And that question is, what was the space race? No, sure. It's a, it's a, it's a big question, and it's a, a good question. Um, the space race, really, there's a lot of kind of overlap between the space race and the moon race. Um, and we'll mainly be talking, I think, about the kind of moon race. That's what people usually talk about when they say the space race. But the space race essentially was the rivalry and competition between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War uh, to demonstrate their technological superiority in space. Uh, The biggest sort of, I guess, event within that, the space race was more like a kind of Olympics in that there there were multiple events that the two sort of powers progressed through. But the most important event was to land a a crewed spacecraft, so a spacecraft with people, uh, on the moon and return that crew safely. Um, And this was principally during the 1960s when we see the rivalry uh, over landing on the moon first. But you do have this broader issue of space competition. So space competition begins, arguably, with Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite in 1957, and then it continues way beyond Apollo. So even after the Americans land on the moon first, uh, the superpowers are still competing in space. They're still trying to one-up in each other in space, and they're still looking at what the other power is doing uh, to justify their programmes and think about where to go next. Um, here's a question from um, MFHQ on Instagram. And that person asks, which moments do you think provided the biggest leaps forward in, in terms of space travel? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's a good question because space technology, obviously, it it evolves like any other technology, which is often kind of incrementally. So there's small changes and then eventually maybe you might get these giant leaps. But often it's this story of incrementally improving, uh, making systems more reliable. But with the space race particularly, we do see these incredibly important moments that are often referred to as firsts. So the story kind of starts in the 1950s, where we have the two powers uh, developing their missile technology. Uh, This is a a direct military competition, which we can talk about a bit, but it's this idea of developing uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
in order to hit the other power without having to maintain a large bomber fleet, a fleet of kind of uh, planes that can drop atomic weapons uh, on the other. You can use a missile instead. So those programs are developing in the 1950s. In 1957, the Soviet Union launches the world's first uh, ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, uh, using this this rocket called the the R7 or part of the R7 rocket family. Um, shortly afterwards, you get a spin-off of the R7 rocket, which is the 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 Sputnik One, uh, the the rocket that launches the Sputnik One satellite. And this is the really crucial first of the space age. This is the first artificial satellite, the first human object to orbit the Earth. Um, it burns up in the atmosphere eventually. Sadly, Sputnik is no longer in the atmosphere. Uh, it did burn up a, a year or so later, or a couple of years later. Um, but the um, this is the first artificial satellite. That's the, the the starting gun of the space race, people often describe it as. You then get uh, the next stage, which is you've got these artificial satellites. They're able to do basic uh, scientific experiments, communications uh, missions, things like that. Uh, but the next stage is having humans on board. So the, the next really imp- important first, uh, I'd say, is the the Soviet Vostok program, which is uh, a, a program designed to prove that humans can can live in space or can be in space safely. Uh, so in 1961, Yuri Gagarin is the first person to orbit the Earth. We then get a range of other Vostok missions. The Americans have their own Mercury program at the same time, but the Soviets do get there first. You also have uh, lunar uh, missions as well. So uh, the Soviet lunar program manages to photograph the uh, the far side of the moon. That's another hugely important moment. So the Soviets are leading in this early period with firsts. They're making a huge impression on the world stage uh, with these firsts that really broadcast this image of Soviet technological superiority or the idea that the Soviets are gaining on the United States and they've found an area where they're better. But the next sort of big first is is the Gemini program or the Gemini program, uh, which includes a, a range of, of missions that set the stage for Apollo. And it's in the Gemini program that we really see uh, American space technology come into its own. It does these hugely difficult, incredibly sophisticated tasks like having multiple spacecraft uh, meeting up and docking and exchanging crew. So Gemini is, is the next big moment. And then there are sort of other events beyond the 1960s. So you have the moon landings, obviously, huge thing, it goes without saying. Uh, a pivotal moment in world history, really. And one that I think, if we're around for centuries to come, will be remembered as as one of the major moments of the 20th century. You then have things like the shuttle, which is interesting and is, is an incredible piece of technology, but is somewhat of a dead end. Uh, the US turns against the shuttle. It, it decides that this is too unsafe and risky and expensive to run. Uh, you also have the, the the Russian program, which begins to focus on space stations, so the Salyut space stations of the 1970s, and the Soyuz, uh, which is their really reliable workhorse of a spacecraft, which is still taking astronauts to the International Space Station um, you know, to this day, uh, and hasn't changed a, a huge amount since the 1960s, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I'd say, yeah, you, you have these early uh, missile efforts in the 50s, the first satellite, the first human being, then Gemini is is the moment when everything comes together. Now, if we can go back to the beginning, this is a, a question from uh, Tommy Ronco on Instagram. And he, he's asking, did 
um, both sides start from absolute zero. I mean, I guess the question here is, what was the level of technical knowledge and capability in the 50s when the space race really took off? And I, I guess another kind of a question we can ask around that as well is, you know, how much did um, the two sides experience of the Second World War play into their knowledge as they entered the space race? Absolutely. And a really good point to, to make is that a lot of this comes out of the Second World War. So before the war, there'd been a lot of theoretical work done. It, it's difficult to research this because there are these big nationalist myths where nations associate their rocket programme with a father figure. You know, we want to find one person that we can point to and say, this is the almost always man who invented this. And, you know, we can worship that particular figure. And that sort of makes sense. When actually technology emerges in a very complicated way, there's a lot of duplication, people having similar ideas. So you you have this theoretical work before the war, uh, which is people like kind of Konstantin Tsiolkovsky in the, the the Soviet Union, Robert Goddard in the United States, and then Werner von Braun in uh, Germany. They're the, the the big rocket fathers that people talk about. Then in the Second World War, the 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 Nazi German regime has has poured a lot of money in the the final stages of the war into developing the V2 weapon, the the so-called V2, uh, the V standing for the German word for vengeance. This is uh, one of these, there are numerous technologies like it, and this is a big thing that uh, the the Nazi propaganda apparatus talks about. You know, no matter how bad the war's going, we've got secret weapons that we work on, and when we deploy them, we're going to turn this thing around. The Allies, you know, won't know what hit them. The V2 is one of the few things that actually comes out of this idea of, of the super weapon that they're developing. And even though uh, the V2s are, are very expensive, they're very unreliable, uh, they do have a huge psychological impact. Britain's recovered from the Blitz, the air raids are, are largely a thing of the past, and then suddenly the V2 raids start happening. You can't really hear these things coming, you can't see them in the sky, they're absolutely terrifying. Um, and all throughout kind of you know, southern Britain and the low countries uh, where they're being deployed and, and, and sort of and fired, uh, they cause a lot of fear. This is a real terror weapon. The Allies are all really impressed by this and they think, well, we've got to have this for the post-war era. So there's this big race to capture the technology and also the personnel who are responsible for it. And all of these German rocket scientists who've been involved in the V2 programme, well, I should say rocket engineers, actually, because they're not really scientists, they're involved in a kind of engineering programme. All of these engineers are racing to get captured by the Americans, because you don't want to end up on the Soviet side of the border. Stalin had put his his best uh, rocket scientists into the Gulag system, so Sergei Korolev, uh, Valentin Glushko, the two best rocket scientists in the Soviet Union, had both spent time in the Gulag. It's not a place that you want to be, particularly if you're a German in the post-war era. Also, there's an idea that you don't really want to be captured by the British because London has been on the receiving end of this technology. And Werner von Braun is, is a member of the SS and the V2 rocket programme is, is implicated with a, a huge range of crimes against humanity. So it's created by slave labour. Um, it uses slave labour from concentration camps, uh, the Dora concentration camp, uh, to produce these things, that the conditions are horrendous. And there's the idea that the British might want to take revenge. So you want to get captured by the, the Americans. So these German scientists, we can talk about them in a bit, they play a big role, but German technology particularly 
helps kind of kickstart the the theories and the ideas that were already there and the investigations that were already there. In the 1950s as well, you have a lot of theorising about how space technology might be used. So the psychological implications of it is a huge thing that people are interested in. The Rand Corporation, which is this sort of quasi-state, you know, think tank, um, talks about the military and psychological impact of Earth satellites, and it predicts most of the uses of space technology that we live with today. So spy satellites, uh, military communication satellites, uh, the prestige of space uh, exploration as well. Um, And then you also have a a lot of popular culture which prepares the way for the space programme. So these space popularizers. Uh, Von Braun uh, himself is one of them. Talk about how space exploration is going to happen very soon. And this is something that's feasible and imminent. So you have these missile programs coming out of the V2 program. You also have this cultural sense that the space age is about to dawn. And that makes people much more receptive to this technology that might seem quite outlandish. Outlandish. We, We can't really understand that the emergence of space technology without understanding that the ground had been prepared culturally. You know, people were really expecting this to happen, and that helped in many ways uh, pave the way for the space age. So is it fair to say uh, no German engineers, no space race? I mean, is it as stark as that? Well, it's. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, the, the, the issue with the, the Germans is, is that for a long time, when people were talking about... Uh, the space race and when people are talking about space technology they were just talking about the german rocket engineers and the the historical literature is still recovering from that there's a term that's used for that literature which is the huntsville school so it's named after huntsville alabama where a lot of the germans were based both with the army initially and then with nasa uh that the german team got moved from the army to nasa and it's this idea that it was all thanks to these these german engineers and these german engineers didn't really care about the politics of it they just wanted to go into space you know, we shouldn't blame them for anything they did in the war. Uh, these were were sort of scientific dreamers. The, histor- the, the historical literature has moved on a bit from that. That's a bit of a myth, and it was quite a self-serving myth for these German engineers. The German engineers and the German heritage, particularly, of this rocket technology is incredibly important. And certain German engineers, particularly Werner von Braun in uh, the United States, have a massive impact. He has an impact because not only he helps design the V2... But he also manages the Saturn V program, which is the, the rocket that brings the Americans to the moon. He also uh, plays a huge role in popularizing space. He's this sort of, he, I guess you could describe him as, as this really recognizable uh, face of space in the 1950s. Uh, he's someone that is respected. Uh, he's very charismatic. Uh, despite the fact that he has this very shady Nazi past, he's really embraced by most of the the US public. And he combines these three things, so engineering know-how, managerial or organisational skills, and then uh, publicity and charisma to really sell this programme and and steer this programme forward. So he's an incredibly important programme. But I think even if we didn't have that, you know, it's always difficult with counterfactuals, but even if we didn't have those specific Germans, I think we would have seen something similar. This is technology that was already being theorised about, but obviously provides a big boost and and speeds up the fact that you have the V2. Okay, um, here's a question from uh, Joran Eichhorn on Twitter. 
Um, he's saying, it, it starts in the 1960s, the Soviet Union was way ahead of the USA, as you alluded to earlier. So why did they lose the race to be the first to the moon? Where did it all go wrong for them? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you look in the early 1960s and you read American sources, there's this real sense of pessimism. They think the Soviets are going to get to the moon by 1967 to celebrate the anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And this is this common prediction that's made, that the Soviets will be living uh, on the moon by the 1980s in these space cities, that, um, you know, all of these outlandish ideas, there's even ideas in the 1950s that they're going to dye the moon red uh, to sort of celebrate communism. Obviously, it doesn't happen like that. So the idea that the United States gets there first is quite surprising in some respects. But it's down to a few things on the Soviets' part. Uh, Priorities and funding, and then also duplication and infighting. So the United States struggles initially. It had plans for a space program, but it didn't have the same huge funding boost that would, would later come in the late 50s and the 1960s. But the... Once it kind of gets its act together in 1961 after Gagarin and says, look, our goal is the moon by the end of the decade, as Kennedy famously says, once it sets that goal, it sticks to it. It manages to, the United States steers this through Congress. Uh, They create uh, successive presidents, so John F. Kennedy and uh, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson. They create a political constituency for space. So, Senators and congressmen who might not be interested in the the so-called Buck Rogers aspect of space, but they are interested in getting jobs to their communities. They're interested in the money that space can bring in. So they create this political constituency. They stick to the program. Space programs are incredibly complicated. They need a lot of time to come to fruition. There'll be a lot of false starts, a lot of uh, problems and mishaps that have to be overcome to get a technology safe and ready for human use. In the Soviet Union, though, They get all of these space firsts, exploiting the fact they have a very good heavy lift capacity in the early 60s. But by the mid-1960s, the US have surpassed them, and they haven't really focused on what their next goal is going to be. By the time they seriously start considering the moon in the mid-1960s, the United States is already testing the Saturn V, so they start late. They also, the United States has this this very top-down system. It's defined by the government... You can bid for contracts, but you are bidding for a contract as part of a larger government project. In the Soviet system, people are competing for patronage within the Soviet military-industrial complex. You have all of these really bitter sort of Game of Thrones-style feuds between guys who are imprisoned together 30 years ago and hate each other's guts, and they're trying to destroy each other. Um, And this leads to all this waste, duplication, infighting, sort of wasted dead ends, these big debates over what kind of fuel to use. Everyone has different patrons within the the upper levels of the party that they're trying to call on for support. So you have this incredibly chaotic system. By the time that they finally sort of resolve, right, we're going to go to the moon, you've already had multiple different systems competing with each other. Um, This sort of weird, I guess, market situation where you have multiple kind of design bureaus. And all of this is kind of compounded by the fact that the people at the top of the Soviet military-industrial complex aren't interested in space. They think it's a waste of time and money. So they're constantly fighting against this uh, this inertia that wants to cancel or reduce these, these space programs. So it, it's strange. If the Soviets had behaved like the American image of them, which was that they were this, you know, robotic, monolithic... Uh, 
entity that moved as one and that the party was defining its goals and then the goals were being achieved according to a timetable, then they would have got there first. But actually, they behaved in this very sort of internally competitive and, and, and I suppose, yeah, um, wasteful, competitive manner that, that prevented them from reaching their goals. But all of this is hidden from the public. People have no idea about this until the 1980s when Gorbachev comes in. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Sputnik and Gagarin really provide a positive image of communism. And it's one that there's still a lot of pride within the former Soviet Union to this day. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. How important was it to both countries' prestige, especially it being during the Cold War, to win this race to the moon? How much of a shot, shot in the arm was it to the Americans in 1969 when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the surface of the moon? It, it's a huge boost to prestige. I mean, prestige is what's uh, paying the bills here, really. This is the biggest justification for space exploration. You are demonstrating your technological and thus your societal superiority by doing these incredible, almost magical feats. And there are three audiences for this. There's the audience at home, which is being reassured that, you know, oh, actually, we might win this Cold War. I mean, particularly in America, that's important. Sputnik is very scary, leads to all of this soul-searching about, you know, has America become fat and lazy? Has America sort of stop focusing on its values if we lost our way. And space successes quiet those doubts and they they give people something to rally around, a cause to rally around. You then have the opponent, which is, you know, demonstrating these feats in space sends a very strong signal to the opponent going, look, we are serious about our Cold War quests. Uh, we're serious about resisting uh, your ideology and our technology is superior to you. So you shouldn't try anything. I mean, Nikita Khrushchev uses this to make up for the fact that Soviet ICBMs are, well, there's not very many of them, and they're very unreliable. But he can point to cosmonauts who are orbiting perfectly and then coming down the spot they're intended to. And he says, look, we could replace those cosmonauts with something else. So, you know, watch out. Equally, the Americans use that kind of idea to say, well, the Viet Cong have no hope against us. We're we're sending people to the moon. Well, they don't come out right and say this, but... There is this kind of uh, this idea that look, you we are a technologically advanced superpower, and then the most important audience is the third one, which is the the rest of the world, and particularly the the, the non-aligned world or the decolonizing world, because in the Cold War, it's not about changing the minds of you know 
East Berlin or or the United Kingdom, they're pretty much stuck in the camps that they're in. They're not going to switch sides. It's about these new decolonized countries who the superpowers believe uh, look to the superpowers for guidance. The Soviets can say, look, we started off as a medieval backward czarist country. And then within 40 years, we were able to orbit a satellite. A few years after that, we orbited a person. He was born on a collective farm and we sent him into space and we brought him back. He can tell you about that. That's what we can do. The Americans equally can say, look, we have all of this technology that we're going to share with people. We're going to use uh, satellites to find resources, to help you kind of unlock the natural resources that you need for development. You should listen to our development experts because we are the most advanced country in the world. So it's about that kind of global audience. So it's it does sort of provide a shot in the arm for, I guess, Americans, because this is the time of, of Vietnam and it's a very hopeful symbol to kind of, and also the civil rights movement. There's often this idea that, well, here's something positive that the US government is doing, something that isn't, you know, beating up protesters or dropping napalm on villages. Here's something that we can aspire to. But even more important is this global audience and, and using this as kind of global propaganda. Right, here's a question from B on Instagram. And that question is, is the moon landing a myth? Now, um, I assume that you don't personally believe that it's an elaborate lie. But I, mean, I guess the question this throws up is, why is this proved such an enduring conspiracy theory? Um, and what can the scientific community say to prove the doubters wrong? No, it's it's a good question. Um, I mean, I hope it's not a myth because I would have wasted the second <laughs> half of my twenties looking into this. I think you know, sort of that that would have felt you know that would be really grim if if that was all for nothing. Um, I could have been doing so much you know other stuff. I did actually. I, I had a housemate when I sort of before I did my PhD who believed that the moon landing was a myth, and I didn't know this for ages until he just said like, "Yeah, they didn't do it. It doesn't make any sense," and I, I was I was dumbfounded. But this is, I mean. The, the reasons I don't think it's a myth personally is I think it would have been such a vast conspiracy. It would have been more expensive than actually going to the moon to keep this thing a secret. And then you also have to make the argument, which is if the if the US is covering up its lunar hoax program, how did they keep the Soviets from finding out? Because this would have been the propaganda coup of the century. The, the Soviets... Publicly, they, they do praise American uh, space technology. But whenever something goes wrong with the American space program, the Soviets send condolences, but then they say, look, this is the American obsession with propaganda. They just want to, you know, this is the imperialist world doing these schemes and they need to, this is what's happening. So the Soviets would have leapt on that. And I think that the truth would have outed. I mean, look at the Pentagon Papers. Look at the these people within the US uh, state in the 1970s who... Uh, reveal information. But anyway, the reason I think this is so prevalent is that when it comes to historians, the, the point is not to debunk these ideas, it's to try and understand them. And conspiracies, I, I think the best definition of them is that they're a strategy for people who are powerless to make sense of the world in a way that centres them and, and gives them a sense of power. So in the early 1960s, you have all of these conspiracy theories about how the Soviet program is faked or about how the Soviets have killed cosmonauts in space but then covered it up. But people have heard the tapes and, you know, they're still orbiting up there. 
kind of the, these skeletons in a spaceship. And you have all of these ideas that the Soviet effort is just this huge hoax to get the capitalist world to invest in the wrong priorities. And that was a kind of attempt by anti-communists to make sense of the fact that the Soviets were doing really well in space. If you spent 30 years saying the USSR is a backwards country, it's a medieval country, when they're suddenly launching Sputniks, you need to understand that. And so this Soviet space hoax was a way of doing that. I think with the moon hoax idea, though, it's about the loss of trust in the government that you see in the 70s. You see Watergate, you see the Vietnam War, um, you have falls in standard of living, successive economic crises. People are saying that the, the moon hoax is a hoax almost immediately after it happens. I've seen a letter from a senator where he jokes about Stanley Kubrick directing the whole thing, and that's from 1969. So people are already talking about this at the, at the time, but I think it's this general disenchantment with big big government and Vietnam really, and Watergate really demonstrates that the, this idea of the US government is this friendly power that was trying to help the world with its technological superiority. That really undermines that. People turn away from it. And it makes sense in a way that they would have, you know, if they lied about all these other things, if they were going around the world assassinating all these people and, you know, doing all these dirty tricks at home, of course they lied about the moon. I think it's so popular now because the more time that passes without people being on the moon, the weirder it seems. It seems like a surreal sort of dream to people who didn't witness it. So I think sort of people from later generations, it feels plausible because of that, because it feels like a fantastical thing. And it just happened for these few short years and then we never went back up there. Which kind of leads me on to my next question. And and, and that is, why haven't we been back there? Why is it decades since we've put people on the moon? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because I think this gets down to the fact that the Apollo program was this incredible achievement and it led to this incredibly quick development of an amazing magical technology. All of these incredible moments where historians have made the case that the Apollo program makes people around the world feel like they're part of this global adventure. So it was this, this huge achievement, but it sets a very bad precedent for space uh, policy. Space technology takes a long time to develop and develop it's really complicated and if you just base things on on these these sprints to a particular goal by a particular date once you've done that you've got no incentive to continue down that route i mean why go to the moon once you've already accomplished that that's why they cancelled some of the later apollo missions because we don't need to go there that many times we'll go for the bare minimum to establish our technological superiority and then we can forget it uh, immediately when he comes in, Richard Nixon wants to cut space spending and reduce space to a, a normal part of its national priority. Space spending is becoming less popular. Uh, people are becoming less interested in space in the 1960s. And I think kind of Apollo is... The problem is, is that it's all based on this one goal. And once that one goal is achieved, what do you do next? And NASA's been spending the kind of, I guess, succeeding 50 years struggling to answer that question proposes all of these sort of grand ideas immediately after, like, we're going to go to Mars, we're going to build these huge huge space stations. The only thing it can actually fund is the space shuttle, which looks great. It looks really cool when it lands on a landing pad, but, well, you know, on a a runway. But beyond that, it's, it's a, people say it's a taxi with nowhere to go. It's not until it starts going to the, the Russian space station Mir in the 1990s that it actually has a destination. 
So it's it's NASA's in a very difficult position in 1969. It's proven that it is the most competent organization in the world. It's done this incredible, unachievable task. And by doing that, it's almost removed the need for its existence. Okay, that again leads me on to the next question, which uh, is from somebody called Casa de Quazo Carena. And that is, that is, the space race was expensive. Was it worth the economic payback? It's a difficult question. Um, I'd say, on balance, I think it was. Um, I mean, the US spent $25 billion on Apollo. And while Apollo leads to all sorts of problems with regards to the health of US space policy, you know, US space policy has never really recovered from this, this huge, big achievement. It's been a victim of its own success. Apollo led to a huge positive boost in America's image. And it solidifies the perception that America is the technological leader of the world. It's a massive boost for American diplomacy at a time where, with Vietnam and other things going on, uh, America really needs some positive press. It doesn't invalidate all of those. I mean, you know, but the the power of Apollo, I think, is that uh, Lyndon Johnson sent Ho Chi Minh a photograph of the Earth that had been taken during the Apollo 8 mission, where they circumnavigated the Earth. And he got a very polite uh, thank you letter back. This is, you know, one of the few instances of diplomatic contact between them where he says, you know, this is fantastic. Thank you for sharing this with me. And I think that proves that the positive press of of space exploration and space technology, it's also a big uh, jobs creation program. Beyond the the so-called spin-offs like nonstick frying pans and and Teflon and things like that, uh, it produces these, these jobs which while not particularly long-lasting, and there have been arguments by some economic historians that these sorts of jobs actually expedite the the move of industries away from communities. But it does invest in America's high-tech industry. Things like computer miniaturization uh, get a boost through these technologies. Satellite technology as well, you can say, gets a huge boost, and that's fundamental to our way of life now. I mean, in terms of the Soviet Union, they also get a massive boost from space technology. Um you know, this is a time where after the, the the bloody reprisals against Hungary in 1957, uh, Sputnik and Gagarin really provide a positive image of communism. And it's one that there's still a lot of pride within the former Soviet Union to this day. Um, there is There are all these kind of testimony from people who celebrated uh, Gagarin's flight in Red Square, where there's the, the biggest gathering of people since the end of the uh, the Second World War. And it created this huge moment of joy and it created this massive boost of prestige. So I think for the kind of technology, the the pork barrel economic benefits, and then also, yeah, the 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 positive press. I think space, it was expensive, but I think that the payback was was multiple times what they uh, they spent on it. Here's a great question from Robertson Sang on Instagram. And that is, what did the USA and Soviet Union think about the philosophical implications of space travel? Um, so I guess the United States, for example, was and is a, a nation of strong religious beliefs. So how did Americans, how did they see their relationship with God and the cosmos changing as a result of, of what they saw unfold during the space race? It's it's a great question. Um, and I think this is one of the most interesting things about the space race, because space is, after all, the heavens. Uh, if you're 
going by religious cosmology or a scientific cosmology, the answers are out there. The truth is out there. Um, and we can learn so much about where we come from, supposedly from going into outer space. That's a big, I guess, justification for going on this quest in the first place. So yeah, it's definitely got a spiritual dimension. Within the United States, it's about these quasi-religious ideas of the frontier. So the frontier is believed to be where America finds itself, where America is renewed. The frontier is closed at the end of the 19th century, so this frontier myth is transposed onto space. The idea of space is the new frontier, the final frontier. America's going to find its way again. I think that's a very religious idea. You also have some people, Roger Launius, one of the leading US spaceflight historians, he argues that spaceflight has become a religion in the United States. So people like uh, Jeff Bezos, who, who believe in space colonization, are pouring billions of dollars into it, is because it's this almost biblical chance for a fresh star. We go on a pilgrimage to this other planet and we can start again. All of the terrible things we've done on Earth, all the terrible things we do to Earth can be forgotten if we, we just start again in space. In terms of how it sort of reacts with religion, um, my PhD supervisor, a, a guy called Kendrick Oliver, wrote an incredible book uh, about this um, called To Touch the Face of God. And he argues, I think it's a really persuasive argument, that NASA really failed to get religious people on side, that this could have been a an enduring support base for the space program, and they, they didn't manage to get uh, religious people on side because they focused on this very dry, rational, technocratic approach, you know, talking about safety and science, making sure that the, the, the taxpayer realised that they were getting value for money. We weren't up there to find these big cosmic answers. We were there to do a job. And that actually alienates people because whenever NASA gives in to the spiritual side, uh, with the Apollo 8 mission particularly, where the astronauts are circumnavigating the moon on Christmas Eve and they read the first passages of Genesis, that's one of the most resonant, emotive moments of the space age. And it has this huge worldwide appeal. Um, some of the astronauts try and bring that sort of stance in. Buzz Aldrin takes communion on the moon. Uh, you have a couple of astronauts who have these very spiritual experiences. So uh, James Irwin, one of the Apollo astronauts, becomes a born-again Christian. Edgar Mitchell, um, another Apollo astronaut, comes back and he's obsessed with kind of paranormal activity and UFOs and psychic power. And he spends the rest of his life on this spiritual quest and he says that's because of sort of the things he felt and experienced up there. But on the whole, NASA doesn't really, I guess, take advantage of this huge resonant idea of, of space and the cosmos being this place of spiritual significance. The Russians are a bit better at this. They really emphasise the poetic element of the space, uh, I guess, the, the space exploration experience. Um, the cosmonauts use very poetic language. They, they talk about, you know, mankind's place within the cosmos and unlocking the mysteries of the universe. Um, there's also this attempt by the Soviet Union to get space flight to replace religion. So you turn churches into planetariums. And you have, uh, there's a cosmonaut called Gaman Titov who offends uh, the United States when he's visiting the US by saying, I didn't see God in space. Some people say he's up there. I don't believe that. And massively offends his hosts. But that doesn't really work, actually. The, the sort of Russian people, it's there's a great book about this called uh, A Sacred Place is Never Empty. And, and one of the things it talks about is, uh, yeah, just Russian people, when they were interviewed by Soviet uh, officials about sort of space and religion, they were like, well, I just hope that God keeps those guys safe up there. You know, they they the fact the cosmonauts are going up there doesn't 
invalidate their religious faith. They can't get cosmonauts to replace God. Okay, and Hunter of History asks on Instagram, what role did espionage play in the space race? Yeah, uh, hugely important. I think the reason that Eisenhower actually gives the US space program the go-ahead is because he wants spy satellites. So the US is investing in all these military programs uh, that it potentially doesn't need. So having a spy satellite orbit, orbit over the, you know, uh, the Soviet Union would show you what their military strength was, you know, how many missile uh, installations they had. So Sputnik uh, coming first actually helps Eisenhower a lot because it establishes the principle of satellite overflight, that it's legal for satellites to go over a country, that that's not part of their airspace. So Sputnik helps Eisenhower massively, even if it is very humiliating for American prestige, it establishes that you can't complain when something orbits overhead. So that paves the way for US uh, spy satellites. Um, they keep this program a secret until the 70s, but everyone sort of knows that they're launching spy satellites. LBJ uh, inadvertently reveals on a, a hot mic that he, you know, that they do have this capability. Uh, he says, look, before the spy satellites, we had fears that we didn't need to have. Those are his words. Uh, that this is a huge boost for espionage. There's also a lot of espionage around each other's space programs. So spy satellites take photos of the uh, the Soviet installations. They also catch in, in June 1969 that there's been a huge explosion, that the Soviet uh, heavy lift vehicle has exploded, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. And uh, they use this information to sort of try and work out what's going on with the Soviet program. There's also a, a really mad story from, I think, 1959, where the Soviets are, are touring this uh, lunar probe around the world as a, as a demonstration of their scientific and technical achievements. And the CIA manages to get access to this exhibition twice. And on the second time, they take it out of its crate, they completely disassemble it, take pictures of everything, then reassemble it, put it back in the crate, and the Soviet security guards come back in the next day or the Soviet exhibition people come in, take it out of the crate and prepare it for the exhibition, having no idea that this has been photographed by, by American spies. And the American sort of operatives involved in that, they think, oh, well, it, it must just be a model. The Soviets can't really be sending a real lunar probe on this uh, this tour. And then they're like, well, it is an actual real lunar probe. We've we've hit the jackpot. So, yeah, the, 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 the space programs are both... Um, they're big targets for the other, but they also, I guess, they lead to this new space espionage system, which is, it's almost the most important aspect of space in the Cold War, is satellite reconnaissance and, and how that changes the, the weapons that the superpowers buy, the activities they do. It really changes the way they wage the Cold War. Now, was this just a two-horse race, or, or were other countries uh, involved as well? Yeah, well, other countries are involved, I think. I mean, um, the US and the USSR are definitely the big two to focus on. So the French and the British launched their own satellites. Um, you know, in, in 1963, the, the French briefly sent a cat into space, uh, Felicette, uh, who was sadly killed two months after the mission so they can study her brain, which I think is a, a very harsh thing to do. But um, the, the French launched their own, launched their own satellite uh, called Asterix in 1965. Uh, the UK launches one satellite aboard a US rocket in 62. They then launched a satellite called Prospero in 1971 using a British rocket. 
So there are other powers there. You also have China and Japan uh, in the 1970s getting involved. Um, the two superpowers are also working closely with uh, their allies. So scientists and engineers from across the blocks come to the countries, get involved in the space effort. This is a, a transnational effort in a, in a way. They also have uh, cooperative programs. So uh, particularly in the 70s and 80s, they start inviting other states to cooperate with them very closely. And they start cooperating with each other. I guess it's also a kind of global story because of this audience, you know, of the decolonizing world, and it's them that you're trying to impress. Um, and you also have things like, I mean, tracking stations that are located all around the world in Africa and Australia, Soviet tracking ships that are going all around the oceans. So even though, you know, it's it's an American flag and it's a Soviet flag that is on the spacecraft when it's launched, um, I think this is a global story. And what's really interesting now is that historians are really digging into these international connections, you know, how other countries got involved. Now, here's a question from uh, Maldita Crespo on Instagram. And that is, did the expense of running a space programme contribute to the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s? I I don't think so. I don't think it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, I think that the Soviet Union collapses because there are these crises of yeah, the economy, but also social stability and political legitimacy. And, and space spending, I guess you could say, is a symptom of the problems rather than the problem itself. You know, the problem is that there's all of this spending on the military and there's no spending on consumers or, or citizens. There's no, you know, you're launching multiple uh, spy satellites up into the atmosphere, but you're having to import things like grain. Uh, Khrushchev saw space technology and, and missile technology as a way of, um, in his words, curbing the people he called the steel eaters. So these big military industrial uh, enterprises, he thought it's going to be cheaper to have a, an army that's based around missiles rather than, you know, troops and tanks and what have you. So, but actually, you know, it ends up that this is where all the innovation is going. This is where all the funding is going. Uh, particularly into the kind of 1970s and 80s. And it sort of throws into relief what the Soviet Union isn't spending on. It's it's money on, particularly uh, as we go on things like computer technology. Um, it's spending money on them, but they're nowhere near as advanced as the United States. Uh, this, you know, this information revolution is passing the Soviet Union by. So, and it's only in the kind of very dying days of the Soviet Union that the, the Soviet space program begins to to feel the effects. You know, they've been insulated from from the crisis. But I think it's it's a symptom of the problem rather than the problem itself. So would it be fair to say that the America won the space race? Can you can you definitively say that? I think America definitely wins the the moon race. I think when it comes to the space race it's difficult because a big part of my research is what happens after the space race and what Americans think about space after Apollo. And every so often, particularly when American astronauts aren't flying for whatever reason, you get these cries that the Soviets are winning the space race. Even in 1987, that's the last big moment of this, uh, or 1986, after the Challenger disaster, uh, people are pointing to the um, the Soviets' Mir space station. They're testing a, a space shuttle as well, and they're saying, look, the Soviets are winning the space race. So the space race continues. But it doesn't really have as clear an endpoint or as clear a goal after this time. Space competition definitely continues. And in some ways, while the United States is kind of 
dealing with all of these doubts and sort of trying to get the shuttle off the ground in the 70s, the Soviet Union begins pressing ahead. It has this incredibly difficult time in the late 60s, early 70s, reaches an absolute nadir with these explosions of the N1 programme. And then it gradually begins to build its way up. It kind of creates these space stations, the Salyuts, and then later Mir, that are incremental and they change only slightly, but each time they get, you know, better and better to the point where the Mir space station, you know, is an incredible, uh, incredible scientific and, and technical achievement. And I think so, I wouldn't say that that means they win the space race. I think America definitely wins the moon race, but the competition does, I guess, spin off in different ways beyond that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you can't really beat the, the sight of Neil Armstrong on the moon. That's, you know, sort of it's, the, the Soviets do point to, hey, look, we've got, you know, six guys in space or look, we've we brought someone from this country up into space. You know, this is very impressive. Um, but the Americans can always turn around and say, look, there's an American flag on the moon. Uh, and that sort of ends the conversation. But I, I think the competition does continue and, and Americans are still worried, you know. Um, Apollo doesn't quieten those worries. Space is still a place where, you know, there's a lot of Cold War insecurity. And that takes me on to my final question, which is um, a popular internet search query. And that is, what does the future look like for space travel? What are, what are the prospects of humans returning to the moon or going to Mars? I mean, where do we go from here? It's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, this stuff moves very quickly because we've seen a change in the presidential uh, administration. And Trump did throw himself into space. I mean, not just with the Space Force, which, you know, makes more sense than you might think in terms of military organisation, but we also have the Artemis programme, which is a a programme dedicated to returning humans to the moon. And the Biden administration, I think just two days ago, reaffirmed that it's backing the Artemis programme. You know, a lot of money's been spent on it. This is NASA's big kind of priority. And also it's a big achievement once, you know, after the International Space Station. The future of that's still uncertain. But yeah, they've recommitted to the Artemis program. I think the only difference is that Trump had really been pressing hard for 2024. You know, he wanted the chance to talk to an astronaut when they were on the moon. I mean, God knows what that conversation would have been like. But um, I, I think kind of now that the, the Biden administration is in, there isn't going to be that same pressure. I think we probably will see uh, a circumlunar flight, certainly, you know, going around the moon and, and a landing between 2025 and 2028. I think that that's quite likely. Um, you also have this this sort of long delayed launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, America's sort of next great uh, foray into, um, you know, looking at the, the wider universe. So, yeah, you've got Artemis and they're trying to make this uh, an international effort. You have the Artemis Accords, which seek to set out a kind of legal... Uh, regime for how this is going to work and a diplomatic regime. The Russian program's going through a bit of a difficult period. There's, there's been a lot of kind of waste and corruption and delays. Um, funding has been declining. I, I mean, they're sort of also, they've also, they have dropped out of a program called the uh, the Lunar Gateway, which is a sort of international effort to establish a space station um, in lunar orbit. But I think we'll still see the Lunar Gateway, just maybe not with Russian participation. So I think we'll see Artemis, we'll see the Lunar Gateway. You then have this kind of new space, uh, to use that term, which is this more private uh, private enterprise involvement, even though I'm always a bit sceptical about that because the biggest 
contractor and the biggest funder is usually the government. So it's often quite difficult to work out how new new space is. But SpaceX has done... So you're referring to Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos? Yeah, Musk and Bezos. So um, SpaceX and Blue Origin. I mean, SpaceX has done incredible things. Um, You know, the, the, the fact that they've managed to get this reusable uh, program with a dragon working is is a massive achievement. Um, so I think we will see them become increasingly important. With regards to Mars, I'm always very sceptical about this. I think we'll definitely have people back on the moon. We might eventually, in a couple of decades' time, see something, uh, you know, for long-term lunar missions. So I, I hesitate to use the word a permanent base, but some sort of lunar facility. With regards to Mars, though, I, I'm very sceptical because... I've read through, you know, 50 years of documents where people are always saying there will be crewed missions to Mars within the next 25 to 30 years, and and it never happens. And there isn't that... With the Cold War, you had this huge geopolitical reason to go to Mars. And, you know, we don't really have that. And even this idea that, well, we're destroying this planet, so we should go to... um, We should go to Mars to kind of escape from that. I I saw someone on Twitter describe it as... um, you know, that's like your house being on fire and then you're saying, well, I'm going to move to Antarctica. It doesn't solve any of the problems and it's such an extreme thing to go. Mars is a horrible planet. Um, it's it's a miserable place. Uh, and I, I think we, we can go there for a brief stopping point, but, you know, our future doesn't lie on Mars. And the reason I say that is that, I don't know, I, I, just for the past 50 years, people have been saying Mars within the next 25 to 30 years and it... It hasn't happened yet, so I'm not holding my breath. I think, yeah, we're definitely going back to the moon. We're going to see the first uh, first female space traveler on the moon, I imagine, as part of the Artemis program. But, yeah, I think Mars, I'd be very sceptical. Tom, that was so interesting. Thank you very, very much for that. That was great. Oh, thanks, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Cheers. <laughs> that was Tom Ellis. Back in 2020, he appeared on the podcast to talk about the dramatic Apollo 13 mission. You can find that by searching for Apollo 13 at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Kat Jarman will be discussing the Vikings. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.